Hey there, it's Jonathan. So, are you as much of an audiobook junkie as I am? Because I've started to listen to them an awful lot. It's this amazing way for me to go deep and to learn a whole bunch of stuff and also just to have fun when I'm kind of between places. So I love podcasts and I start to listen to audiobooks a lot more. So I wanted to let you know, if you like that, that my new book, How to Live a Good Life, is actually available now as an audiobook. And you can grab it wherever audiobooks are sold, Audible, Amazon, uh, iTunes, all the normal places. And I also narrated that. So if you're cool with my voice on the podcast, then hopefully you would enjoy uh, that narrating a book as well. So if that sounds interesting to you, go check it out. I hope you will find it super valuable. And now turning it over to the rest of our show. I'm here for a specific reason, and that's to help you get better results, period. And it's not going to be comfortable because the whole point of getting new results in life means you got to be pushing into new zones where you've never been before. And so I'm here to push you, and I'll give you the tools along the way, but it's not going to be easy. Hey there, it's Jonathan, back with a conversation on Good Life Project. So I've wanted to sit down with today's guest for some time now. He's a friend of mine, Todd Herman, and... If you read Todd's about page on his website, this is one of the things that I love. Um, it's funny. It actually lines up in interesting ways with me. He leads with, he's a husband, a father, and a son, and then a sports enthusiast, a farm boy from Alberta, Canada. He literally grew up on this massive sort of open farm, like ranch. And then somewhere down the road, he gets to the fact that actually he has this long-time career as an elite performance coach for top Olympic athletes and executives, somebody who really focuses in on helping people perform at the absolute top of whatever game and business and life and athletics and art they're pursuing. That has been his mad passion for his entire adult life, and it's been where he's focused for the vast majority of his life. I have always been super fascinated by and curious by how this kid who grew up literally in the wilds of Canada ended up in this super high performance, high pressure, sometimes massively high stress and high stakes world and made a name for himself there. So I sat down with him and, uh, and we traced this journey. He still works in private practice, but he's kind of broadened his lens out these days and, and he's been building programming. He runs something called the 90 day year, which is this really cool sort of hyper productivity training to teach people how to do astonishing amounts in a ridiculously short period of time. We'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So we're hanging out here, Good Life Project HQ, and uh, you're doing some really fascinating stuff, which I want to get to in the world of performance, expertise, and just making amazing stuff happen. Mm-hmm. You came out of a profoundly different environment than you're existing in now. Um, yeah. You grew up in basically on a ranch in Canada? Yeah, farm and ranch. All right, so take me there. <laughs> yeah, so farm and ranch in the southeastern corner of Alberta, which... If people understand Canada a little bit, maybe they know where Calgary is or the Rocky Mountains, so it's way on the western side. But where we grew, where I grew up, there's no mountains around me and there's no trees. It's a pretty barren landscape. Lots of hills, though. Um, And yeah, it was a very, very large farm, single family, like single family owned farm, which people who don't understand farms, I guess I just said something that doesn't even matter. But our family ran it. We didn't have employees or anything like that. And I'm the third boy, so dad always said he kept on having kids because he needed some free labor (laughs) and so uh but it was great i mean i looking back i loved it uh i loved it that i got that experience uh growing up on a big farm and we got a close family but at the time i felt like a fish out of water when i was growing up i I always just Mm. couldn't wait to leave and get to well new york city where we are right now what was it i made you what was inside that was doing that well, my, my Nana, my mom's mom, chalked it up to when I was about eight years old. She said, you are your great-grandma. And she's like 75% gypsy. Because I always just couldn't wait to get to... I was never kind of happy with where I was standing. I always needed to get to the next thing. I was always like hyperactive and needed to 
go, go, go. And so I think it was some, it was, I think I'm going to find out who I am, what I'm made of when I get to a bigger city. Like, I know there's so many things that were going on with that. I just, yeah. I just, it, I wasn't enamored with the farm life. Looking back, I loved it. But in the moment, I didn't mm. as much. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, so often, like, I mean, that's everybody as a kid. I think you, you know, there's so much that you're angsty and you feel like the circumstance is the thing that's causing all the angst and you can't wait to get away from it. And yeah. But on that note, I, cause I had the just juxtaposition was big for me because my, one of my older brothers, Ryan, he, when he was born, he was immediately put into the tractor and like, th- that's the only place he ever wanted to be was be on the farm. Now he went away and got an agricultural economics degree, but he came back home to take over the farm and ranch. And so he always wanted to be there. He knew that that was the place that he wanted to be. And so that I was like, well, but I don't want that. He had so much clarity behind what he wanted. And I didn't back then. And that was really frustrating for me. Yeah. It was a source of tension between you. Oh yeah. We didn't get along very well at all. We were so opposites. Um, He's the quiet leader. I'm the you know, massive extrovert, gregarious person and which frustrated the hell out of him. But some of that was, you know, I looked up to him and I went, cause I wish I had that thing. Hmm. I wish I had that. I had that one singular focus that I, that's what I want for the rest of my life. And he had that and I didn't, and it was frustrating. So I was like, okay, well I'll find it in New York city or some other place than right here where I'm standing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and not an uncommon thing also, Um, because it is, it's so interesting when you find people, especially when you're younger, who have like, they know their one thing from Mm -hmm. the time that they're a really young age. We so often think that that's the norm. And if we're not that, there's something wrong with us. Mm -hmm. And like, we are, we're never going to be okay. We're never going to be satisfied until we find that one thing. Yeah. Like, you know, the famous line in uh, City Slickers, Curly, one thing. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I totally agree with you. And now, you know, being on the other side of the fence and, you know, having 40 years underneath my belt, I guess now it's, yeah, I, I don't know where those things come from. Like, why, why do we, maybe it's school where we beat kids in, like, do you know what you're going to go to do in school or, but we pick up on these complete untruths about life very early and we internalize them. And then we think that we're bad individuals because we don't have clarity, I guess. But yeah. So what about bro- I mean, brother number three? Uh, so I'm the third oldest and I got a younger sister, but my oldest brother, Ross, he, again, he's back in my hometown area, like working on the farm and, and helping out as well. Yeah. So you're the one that kind of like broke out. Yeah. <laughs> I am that, I'm that classic black sheep, you know, <laughs> everyone's anxious for me and my family, obviously now to come back home. But uh, the first question after about five hours of me being in the house is my mom will cl- always say, so when are you leaving again? <laughs> and it's a bit of basically more of a joke now, but, uh, right. yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we've had conversations recently where you're coming full circle to a certain extent because yeah. I guess you're, you're kind of coming to the realization that there was something that was really profoundly joyful about that time. Yeah. Uh, to the point. Yeah. So we're looking at buying a, maybe a small farm in the, you know, upstate New York area and a place where I can do, you know, some of the big workshop or the workshops that I do as well with people. But my little girls full circle, they are totally cut from dad's, you know, farm DNA cloth. Mm. So maybe it skipped a generation with me, but they just, all they want to do is be around horses and cows and mm. anything farm animally. And, uh, you know, they have, you know, they're living in New York city and they don't know the difference of what they might be missing. 
but when we get out of the city, the first things we do and what they want to go do is go to some sort of hobby farm or some of the cute little yeah. places that are around the area to go what, and play. What do you think, looking back at it and also looking at, at how your kids respond to that now, what do you think it is about that environment that just so, can so, it's like makes you feel tapped in? Is it the physicality of it? Is it like losing yourself in, in work? Is it character building? Is it just nature? Is it, I mean, is it just yes? Is it? <laughs> well, having grown up on the farm and having taken people back to where I grew up. I mean, when I took my wife there who grew up here in New York for the first time, or the words that she kept on saying over and over and over again, because it was just this, I mean, we have this mass expansive space. I mean, thousands upon thousands of acres. All she kept on saying was, I just want to go and frolic. Like, I just want to go and frolic mm -hmm. in the, like, and so there is this sort of opening of maybe the spirit or something that might happen. But I think that the one thing that it does is it also challenges your creativity because in New York city here, you're just hyper inundated with stuff and things to do and things yeah. to look at. Whereas, you know, out in nature and especially in a vast expansive space, it challenges you to think up your, use your own imagination, I think in many ways. I mean, that's what it does for me. Yeah. It's like this vast blank palette. Yeah. Blank yeah. Canvas. Yeah. Yeah, and I know it's interesting. I mean, for me, nature is just a huge reset. It's where I go to yeah. just my heart rate drops, my blood pressure drops, like everything just settles. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, it brings me back to, I love being super physical when I'm in natural environments too. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's hiking or, you know, just climbing or, you know, when I was a kid, like I would, I grew up in suburb, a, a suburb of New York City. But on random days, you would find me in my backyard chopping wood, <laughs> which was a little, tells you a little bit about me yeah. right away. It's like, dude doesn't fit in. <laughs> um, but there's yeah. something about just being, being physical in nature, to me, that is so powerful. That is still a big part of just our evolution, too. I mean, we even though we're all sitting down in chairs most of the time, or many people, even right now, the people who are listening, they're sitting down probably somewhere. Maybe they're walking if they're lucky. Um, but it's, uh, it's still hard coded inside of us. We haven't unshackled ourselves from that part of our evolution that we are physical people yeah. and it's such a great outlet when we're out there. Yeah. You also, you had horses on the farm. We had horses, Cracker Jack, Midnight and mm -hmm. Socks were our three horses. Midnight was a pain in the ass. She was a black Shetland pony and uh, not easy to ride. <laughs> but Cracker Jack was this great thoroughbred that you could put a baby on her back and she would, you know, take care of that baby. There, yeah. So I grew up riding horses. Yeah, yeah. And you guys listening can't see this, but the smile that just like appeared on your face when yeah. you're talking about the horses is telling. They were good. Well, especially Cracker Jack. She was a special horse. Yeah, it's interesting. I've I've met a few people over the last few years that work with horses and have told me that. They've used the nearly identical phrase saying that horses are natural healers, that yeah. they're deeply intuitive and that they'll reflect whatever energy you bring to them, they'll mm -hmm. reflect back to you. Was that your experience? Yeah, that, but my experience of horses was more just how I was taught about them from, you know, the ranchers and cowboys that I was around. And it was that, because we were allowed, we had such, we had such a huge piece of land that we were allowed to just go ride around. Mm -hmm. And at a very early age, I always remember dad or some of my uncles or friends say, if you ever get lost, just tell Cracker Jack to go home and 
the, she'll take you home. And so one thing that people don't realize about horses is if you ever got lost in like the mountains, just let the horse roam because they will find it's, they will naturally find mm. its way home. If you tried to force it, you're just going to steer them away from their natural instinct. And so my kind of lens on horses is they're just natural caretakers of you. And so, and then being around horses for a long time and meeting really fascinating people and know how they're used in therapy for other people people, whether it's, you know, people with, um, mental disorders or behavioral disorders and just how amazing they are with yeah. all people. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's interesting. Cause I was, a conversation comes to mind of somebody who I know, um, who has developed and has worked with horses on a therapeutic basis for, you know, kids, um, with autism, varying degrees yeah. of autism, all the way up to dysfunctional executive teams and companies. Yeah. Um, and they're like, there's this normalizing thing where, you know, it's sort of like the, you get what you need out of the experience on either end of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, on that note, like you bring in executives who are, you know, trying to be type A, you try to be type A around a horse. Good luck with that. Like <laughs> they're, they are, they're good at normalizing and sort of putting people in their place. Yeah. I love that. Um, you're also a pretty athletic kid from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah, super athletic. I mean, that was there was nothing else to do other than if I wasn't going to be playing playing sports, it meant that I was probably going to have some chores and things like that to do. So I was, I wanted to be active and playing lots of sports and um, super competitive and having an older older brothers who would beat you up. Um, <laughs> you know, so sports is totally in my outlet. And volleyball was my big thing, and then I became a nationally ranked badminton player. And then when I got to high school, I started playing football and then got a football scholarship as well. So you're growing up sort of like rugged guy yeah. on a farm yeah. with horses, nationally ranked badminton player. I know. <laughs> I, <laughs> not, like. not that I, I love badminton. <laughs> I know. But it's just... Uh, That's why I throw that one out there because it's a head turner. People are like, really? Head badminton? Um, well, so it's environment and it's people. So my small little rural school that I went to Schuler, Alberta, we had like a maximum enrollment from kindergarten to grade nine from any of the years that I was there of about 65 people mm -hmm. and probably 30 of them were my cousins. <laughs> so, um, uh, one of my teachers though, uh, Mr. Henderson, he was, he was an exceptional athlete as well. And, but badminton was one of his sports. So when we had our gym classes, badminton was always a big, you know, one of the big sports that we would play and, yeah. you know, growing up in Canada, you got a lot of gym time. You're not going to be outside as much. So you played a lot of more indoor sport activities and, you know, the school division I was in, there was a lot of badminton that happened there. So it was just sort of byproduct of environment. And while I loved team sports, I really liked individual challenging sports. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, badminton just happened to be the game that I picked up. Nah, it's funny. I was a gymnast also, which was played as a team sport, but individual event totally. based was like the same thing. I was just, it was about this, that similar mindset. Yeah. Um, so when you had the opportunity to leave, where'd you go? I actually got out early. I like 14. I started kind of living on my own ish a little huh. bit, living with my aunts and uncles because I was involved in swimming. And so I became a lifeguard. And I was trying to become hired as a lifeguard because the money was great. Plus, I mean, it's lifeguarding. I mean, <laughs> get to be around girls and all these things. And uh, so I was volunteering to try to earn up a bunch enough hours and just visibility in uh, in that world. And then I ended up becoming a lifeguard. So I kind of would live about half of the year with my aunt and uncle and then half the year at home. But when I finally left after high school, I went to um, Edmonton, Alberta, played football at the university but washed out after a year because it just wasn't my jam. I just, I started to 
side business while I was in university. I was learning way more from that than I was in my, you know, economics classes. And mm. so, you know, sort of tapped into my rebellious ways and wanting to, I was always really good at finding the hardest way to do something instead of possibly finding an easier path. But yeah, so I went to Edmonton and was there for several years and then ended up traveling all over the place, living around the world with some of the businesses that I started. So what were some of those businesses? Well, first was the first thing I tried to do was build agramall.com, which was a, uh, like an eBay before eBay. This is 94, 95. Uh -huh. The internet was just starting. And yeah, I was yeah. like, I grew up on a farm and every single farm kid will tell you that all of us have these machinery graveyards, these places where old machinery go to die. And I always thought it's really weird. Cause that's, that's useful to somebody growing up. I was always, it always frustrated me that we had this. Mm. And, uh, so I was like, I'm going to start this place called agramall.com where farmers and ranchers can sell all of their scrap machinery. I mean, that's going to be a huge business because there's all these. Meanwhile, not thinking this through, they're not typically the first technology early adopters, right? <laughs> right. Like, and this is back when like there was 56K modems, you know, on forums right. and, you know, you no hear one, like those tones in the oh, background yeah. was dialing and, up. Yeah. And this is before there was even video on the web. And I was like, oh, we can do like live auctions on there. And then we can turn it into, eventually we'll do cattle auctions. And I mean, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that there's total government regulations around the world about transferring cattle across borders and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was an amazing learning experience for me on the importance of validation and, you know, depending on how big your idea is, how much capital you need to get it going. And and so while I was starting that business, I was working in restaurants and being a waiter and, uh, and then I did some management and then I ended up winning restaurant manager of the year for the, the big company that I was working for. And I met a mentor around that time. And he was challenging me on like, what are you going to do with this? What are your goals? He was asking me all these questions that no one had ever asked me before about what I wanted to do with my life. So he challenged me to go do three things after I, I had met him. Mm -hmm. And I went and did those three things. And I started doing sort of hospitality consulting, like how to build amazing teams that grow a great business. So that was my first business was doing that um, hospitality consulting. And So did you have in your head at that time? Because... You've been doing a relatively short period of time, but you won the award. Yeah. Um, was there anything in you that said, I'm not worthy or I'm not ready? Big time. Yeah. Like that was my biggest, my biggest hiccup was I looked like I was 13, 12 years old. Uh -huh. I always had a super baby face and I was like, okay, well, I've had some success, but my big thing was I wasn't focused on the success I had and my ideas around why we had such great teams it was focused on the self. Like I was pointing my finger back at myself the entire time no. saying, you know, like no one's going to listen to you. So it was all total imposter syndrome type stuff. You know, who are you to talk about this yet? You haven't written a book yet. For some reason, I thought that in order for you to be successful, you being a, a consultant or a speaker, you had to have a book. Like that right. was the thing. And to this day, I still have defied the odds of being successful without a book. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that was a huge a huge obstacle for me to overcome. So was it the sort of like the invitation slash challenge from your mentor to like, go do this that pushed you past that to just take action or was it? hundred percent. Yeah. Cause I probably wouldn't have done it. Right. I wouldn't have done it because one thing that he'd said was, you know, if I'm sitting in an audience, I'm not sitting there thinking how old this person is. I'm sitting there thinking, am I getting any value? And even then it's a very subconscious thought. Like right. it's just, but if you're delivering value, then who cares basically where it's coming from. 
Yeah. You might have some people who might, you know, challenge you on credibility, but then just don't go there. Like, don't make that a big part of your process that you're saying, you know, you know, in all my experience, right, right, right. you know, so. Uh, it, it's amazing to me how many people I've had conversations with where somebody touched down in their lives at a moment yeah. and became a mentor, a teacher, a guide, a coach, and everything changed. And that person may not even have been there for very long. Totally. But they were long enough, they, they were there long enough to like create a paradigm change in yeah. the way that somebody saw the world and, and took action. I couldn't probably count the number of times that that's happened, mm. you know, and, and I think I'm fortunate there, but I think it's also a byproduct of, I keep on putting myself into positions where those opportunities can happen. So I think I've had great moments like that more so than other people just in talking to other people. Cause we talk about this and, and you're right. Like many people have that experience. I just think I've had an inordinate amount of them. Mm. Um, but also it's, I had a, when I was 15, Mr. Henderson, again, he challenged me with um, pulling me aside because I was a really good athlete. I knew I was a good athlete, but I was a terrible teammate. Mm. Like I was overly competitive and it's okay to be super competitive, but don't be overly competitive where you're pointing the finger constantly at other people and belittling or whatever. And that was my thing. Like I was just, I was just a shitty teammate really. And he challenged me on that. And he's like, you know, listen, you're going to do good things in sport. You're going to probably get your scholarship or whatever, but no one's going to like coaching you because you're not coachable. You don't listen. Everything's your way. You think you know more than everyone else. And so he challenged, and he gave me a book, but he didn't leave me in that spot, right? He, yeah. Then he gave me a tool, right? I think that's key. I think that's key from being a good mentor is you can break people down. It's okay. I think it's okay. I, that's a big part of what I do. You can break, but you then also need to give them something to take away and, and use, or, you know, try to help extend that paradigm shift. And that's what that one mentor did when he said, go do these three things. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. 
LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. There, There's, you know, in a very past life, I was a lawyer. And yeah. first year of law school is notorious for destroying you. Because uh, yeah. you know, their job is to basically, like, they have people come in from all walks of life, um, some very established in their career, some green out of you know, undergrad. Yeah. And they kind of want to normalize the playing field and also let everyone know, like, you don't know anything. We're going to teach you how to think completely differently. But yeah. to do that, first they have, have to kind of, they have to crash a lot of people yeah. to that level where they're open to actually. So they were, and we had the, I had the like classic movie contract professor who terrified, absolutely terrified people cried and people cried in that class on a regular basis. Yeah. And, um, and what I, what I learned is exactly what you're saying though. The, the professors who were really good did that but that was the starting point for them. Mm-hmm. They knew that they were doing it for some. Some of them did it because I think they just enjoyed doing it. Yeah, the ones that I that I really came to believe were extraordinary. They did it in a way where there was some compassion, but at the same time, you were cracked open. You mm-hmm. were like, "Wow, I do not know how to do this, and I don't know how to speak. I don't know how to think." Yeah. Um, and then they took you by the hand and they said, "Now I'm going to teach you." how to do this. I'm yeah. going to teach you a rational analytic process. I'm going to teach you how to argue. I'm going to teach you how to write in an intelligent, structured, articulate way. I'm curious what your experience has been because to me, I noticed the difference between the professors who did that and the ones who just kind of left you hanging. Yeah, And it's been my experience that I've seen a lot more of the latter in general, in life, with people who touch down, mm-hmm. it's. I think, and I and I wonder why. I, my sense is that it's much easier to create that disruptive experience, you know, and almost get people to rally about this is what we don't want anymore. Yeah, like crack things open, and this is what we don't want anymore. I think it's much harder to create an intelligent, deliberate, like methodical path forward. Yeah. Then, and so a lot of people, I think, aren't willing to go there. Yeah, I don't know. What, what's your thinking around that? Well, I mean, I'll never forget one of the things my papa said to me, because this kind of was, again, a part of my personality. 
he'd said to me, you know, there's two types of construction people in the world. There's construction workers who tear buildings down. There's construction workers who build buildings up. That's all he said. He didn't, he didn't turn it into a, you know, moral of the story type thing. He just let it fall flat, which I think is brilliant because I would have probably extended the, the thing and said, so, and I ruminated on it. I think it was about 13 at the time. And yeah, it's harder to build. It's harder to build. It's easy to tear down. So the people who are just like breaking someone down for the sake of breaking someone down, maybe it's, you know, ego enjoyment or whatever. That's so easy to do. It's so easy to point out. It's another thing to actually have to extend your thought process through that moment and say, okay, so now that I've actually brought this person to the ground, what's the first step that I can give them? Or what's the second one and the third one? That's hard because that means you have to have a competency or you have to have some sort of wisdom around that that moment that you've yeah. just done with that person essentially. And I think that's one thing that just having self-awareness, I think it's one thing that I know I do well because I say to people, we were talking about this beforehand, where when I'm working with people, I tell them, listen, I'm not here to coach you on happiness. It's so funny that we're sitting down, right? Because that's what we're laughing at because I don't care. That's a you thing, not a me thing. What I am here to do is to help you perform. And if you internalize that after you've been performing at a higher level and getting better results, that you're happy with that, that's a you thing. That's you telling yourself a story in that is that you're happy with. But I, I'm going to leave that up to you. I, I'm here for a specific reason, and that's to help you get better results, period. And it's not going to be comfortable because the whole point of getting new results in life means you got to be pushing into new zones where you've never been before. And so I'm here to push you. And I'll give you the tools along the way, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah. I want to deconstruct that with you a little bit. Do you equate happiness with fulfillment? I actually, I can say I probably haven't thought enough about it to even give you a good answer. How do you think of them as different or exclusive? So to me, happiness is fleeting. Happiness is a momentary state. Mm -hmm. Um, That's more about pleasure. Mm. Um, whereas fulfillment is more about meaning yeah, and it's, it's enduring. It's, it's more of a, you know, happiness is a snapshot. Yeah. You know, fulfillment is the movie and hopefully it's the movie of your life. Yeah. Um, although you're going to ebb and flow in and out of it. Yeah. You so the curiosity is to me, I tend to agree that it, you know, trying to directly pursue happiness in yeah. everything you do is there's interesting research that actually shows that very often it makes you less happy mm-hmm. that actually doing other things like deepening into relationships that are meaningful, all these other things you do those. And as a byproduct of, the, of those things, you get the, you dip into these moments of happiness, but what you create is a more pervasive lasting sense of this life is good. Yeah. Um, there's a sense of meaning. There's a sense of connection. There's a purposefulness. The reason I'm asking you is because I'm curious how, do you have that same answer to if somebody, if I said, um, like, my job is purely to help you with performance and I don't care at all about um, fulfillment? Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Okay. Yeah. Because in my head, now that you've explained it that way, in my head, that's how I always had happiness equated was it's just fleeting moments. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's here. It's there. Because a big part of my work in sports, we didn't really talk about it, but owning the peak athlete for 19 years doing sports science work with you know, athletes and teams and working with them on the mental game. Cause again, that came down to, I'm trying to help you perform when it counts on the field of play in those moments. Um, so that all of your competencies and skills and what you've practiced so hard on comes out at that moment, not 
an hour afterwards when you say, oh, if I would have just, uh, or focused or relaxed more, I would have been able to perform. So that's all about being present. You got to be present in the moment. And so I, when you're describing fulfillment, I think that's being far more connected to being present where you're at. So that is, I'm totally on board with that. If someone said, yeah, but do you care about my fulfillment? Totally. But fulfill is again, like fulfillment yeah. for me is like you fulfilling every single ounce of, you know, what you've got inside of you comes out in how you show up on the field of play. That's where I'm pretty, I guess, strict, I guess, with how I work with people in that I want to know what you did, not what you're thinking about doing. I think that there's, those are two very, very, very different things. Thinking about calling my mom and telling her that I love her and calling my mom and telling her my, I love her. Those are two different possibilities that get created. One is not a possibility at all. The other one's just caught up in the self. The other one's putting it out there and seeing what happens. Like that's where magic happens. Yeah. I completely agree with you there. Um, one of the perpetual conversations I have with people who are generally in the earliest stages or they're aspiring entrepreneurs mm-hmm. is get out of your head, yeah. put it into the real world. Like there's a little bit of value in conceiving the idea. And then the moment you have enough of a thread to actually validate or invalidate by just putting it into the world and let people interact with it. Yeah. Continuing to actually have that conversation in your head is not only self-defeating for you, for yeah. very, a lot of people, but it's also, it's defeating for the idea because you can actually just know yeah. if it's legit or not and then make decisions based on that. Let, let's fill in a gap here though, because we kind of jumped into yeah. you know, like conversation around expertise. You ended up sort of from your, your early days transitioning into becoming somebody who is a consultant, not just in building expert teams in the restaurant industry, but mm-hmm. actually in expert performance, um, in super high level, elite level performance. Yeah. So how did that happen? Like most things, like for me anyway, pretty accidental. This story actually ties it in. When I was talking about when that, when my teacher, Mr. Henderson pulled me aside and gave me that book on leadership in that book was a conversation about the mind, about the human mind, the book on leadership, actually I don't recall it being very good, but it sent me down this rabbit hole about understanding, okay, well, what's this whole mental side of, um, life really more in general. And I just started to hone this inner game thing. And I really fell into learning about how to get into the zone and flow state consistently. So that was one of my superpowers in sport was I could get into the zone almost at the drop of a hat. And when I got done playing at college level, I was volunteering at a high school and spending more time talking to the football kids about the six inches between their ears, you know, saying, listen, like you don't need to do more cone drills, you know, more wind sprints. That's not going to help you really right now. You're already a a good physical athlete where you're lacking is in your game preparation, your routine. And it doesn't show you're like all this potential quote unquote that you have isn't showing up on the field. And I just, again, at this time I was reading like deep research papers on the mind. What not like nonfiction books. I'm talking like the stuff where the source it came from. And then a friend of mine who uh, runs a lot of hockey academy or runs a big hockey academy in Canada, trains tons of NHL hockey players, like the pros. He said, geez, you know so much about the mind. Would you mind coming into a workshop with these kids on this stuff? So I was like, yeah, sure. So I went in, not paid. I just loved talking about it and did a couple of workshops with them. These kids started getting great results, not necessarily on the ice right away. It was actually in school. Hmm. One kid in particular went from 29% average in school to 64% within six weeks. And then, and he was in grade nine 
Um, and then by the time he left high school three years later, he was on the honor roll um, throughout. And it was just like shifting his perception of, you know, what his possibilities were and, and who he was. So anyways, these kids started to get these great results. And these parents started coming to me and saying like, Hey, you know so much more. Would you mentor my son or daughter? And I was like, yeah, sure. And they were like, well, how much? And I was like, um, $75 for three sessions. Like it was, I completely signed myself up to be in poverty basically with my business model. But, uh, from that, I was like, are these people just hiring me because they know, and they like Todd Herman, they met me and through their kids, or is this actually a real business? Cause I'd never really heard of someone who was a mental game person. Hmm. So I was like, I'm going to validate this. And I resolved I was going to do it through speaking because I already had that skill set from being a 4-H kid growing up. I was not afraid to go on stages. So I tried to do as many speeches in 90 days as I could throughout the province of Alberta. And I ended up doing, by the end of it, 68 speeches in 90 days. (laughs) And, you know, no one in that province, you were just one degree, one person away from knowing who I was. And there's another story about how I got all those speeches. And it was actually very simple. But yeah, so I started that. And I never basically, that was 19 years ago. I never had to market that business since because I created so much good marketing lift in the beginning that there was so much word of mouth. And then I ended up working with pro athletes really quickly because of just this permeating effect from that work. Plus it also helped that I was in Alberta, you know, and Canada, you know, huge hockey country. And everyone had a relative that was probably playing pro. (laughs) So... Yeah, so that's how it started, and then it just I kept on escalating from there. Okay, so you mentioned we could probably talk about how you actually got and ended up with 68 gigs in 90 days. Yeah, we can go, can we that. go there for a few minutes. Yeah, we can. Um, I, that's a big lingering question, I'm sure, for a lot of listeners. Yeah, so 68 speeches in 90 days. So starting out, I called the two people who I know who could get me a speech or a workshop. And by the way, I wasn't asking to get paid in the beginning. This was all about me validating the idea, not about making money. Mm -hmm. And that's an important distinction. So I called up Eric and I called up another uh, gentleman, both who ran hockey associations. And I said, Hey, you know, I've got this uh, talk. I'd love to come and give to the association or to the, to the kids on the triune athlete, the mentally, emotionally, and physically tough athlete that develops strong leaders, not only on the ice, but off the ice. And you know, it's 60 minutes or 90 minutes, depending on what people's availability are. Do you think I could come in and do something? And both of them said, yeah. So that was within the first two weeks. So I went in and when I did the talk, I would always end it the exact same way. I said, oh, and then one thing I asked is I'll do the speech for free, but only if at least one parent from each of the kids is in the room. And I needed that because I had a bad business from the very beginning because the people who were receiving the service and the people who were paying for it were two different people. So I, I went in, did the talk, and then at the end of it, I would say, listen... I know a lot of you parents, you've got other kids who are playing other teams or they're playing in other sports. So if any of you want me to come out and do a talk to them, I'd love to do it. And I'm doing these for free for the next 90 days because I really think that this message is really important that our kids get this. And so about 36% of the parents would come up and they say, yeah, my daughter's on this swim team or my son is on this other soccer team. And, you know, could you come out? And that just snowballed from there. So, you know, it those first couple of speeches, yeah, it took another week or two weeks before the next one would happen. But by the end, I was doing like three workshops a day. Yeah. But it wasn't like, this isn't magic. Like, I wasn't sitting in front of like a big audience. Uh, some of these talks were in sweaty locker rooms where only four of the kids stuck around because the parents didn't think that the message even yeah. was valid. Um, it's, oh man, there's so many things I want to unpack there, but um, we may have to have you back for round two. <laughs> but what's so interesting to me is you, know, you and I both function, a, a chunk of our lives happens in the online sphere these days. Yeah. And, um, and we both deal with a lot of people who are creating things. Yeah. 
And what's so interesting to me is that so many people, the first resort when they want to validate an idea and then build just like the early, early, early parts of it is to eliminate human contact and oh. to take it 100% yeah. online. Let me just do it all in the digital space. Yeah. And then nothing happens. And I'm, I've had so many conversations with young entrepreneurs, especially a lot of professionals also, who are really just looking to build a flourishing practice. Yeah. And the conversation is, okay, you can actually probably do this in you know like three to six months without touching the online world. And in fact... You know, yeah. Literally, like go out in your neighborhood. Yeah. Have conversations with people. Give all these, you know, like small little talks and workshops. And it's it's so interesting to me that um, the internet giveth and it taketh. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one hand, it flattens the world. It makes so much capable in terms of taking an idea yeah. and moving from idea to implementation to scale. On the other hand. I've seen such a rush to do that that we forget about like the fundamental human legwork on the ground in our neighborhood face-to-face yeah. conversations that so often can both be more enjoyable, be give you so much more soft data when mm-hmm. you're trying to validate ideas or mm-hmm. see how they need to be changed. And at the same time, it can build. I mean, that, that initial, it can move you to a tipping point astonishingly quickly if you're yeah. willing to actually just go out locally yeah. and be in a room with people and do it. Yeah. And so automatically there's someone that's listening to this right now. They say, yeah, but I don't live in a big town. I live off in, you know, some remote spot of Wyoming or there's always a million excuses as to why someone won't go that route or they, like even me, I devote a portion of my week. I call 20 customers a week online. So now people who've never met me before, they don't know the platform that I have maybe, but I know I've got one of the bigger ones when it comes to the revenue that we bring into our, our business. And so there are so many people who just to your point, they want to completely eliminate human contact and they want to try and automate and systemize everything. And yet when you hear about how people at some of the top levels of any business, not just the online, like the quote unquote online education, they will do, they will spend more time than what the amateur is doing talking to people. Like I want the real raw information. So for me, like one of the things that when I came into the online space less than two years ago, teaching for entrepreneurs, essentially, I, on my first quote unquote launch, I was, as soon as the order came in, I was calling, Hey, Jonathan, it's Todd from the night of the year calling. And whatever the response is. And I go, listen, before we get any further, why did you hire me? What is the problem that you saw that I could help solve? Like that stuff is absolute gold. You can surmise in your own head why you think what your promise is of your program, but the stuff that you get back, you can't beat it. And it's, and it's conversation, A, it's conversational. It's using the words. It's not typed into some sort of, you know, survey that is still pretty, you know, hermetically sealed in some ways with the way that people respond. No, I get the raw data and it's extremely valuable. But so I devote a portion of my week still to making sure, and I'll never stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes so much sense. And also you get, not just will people tell you things that they might not tell you, but also you get those data points of tone and inflection totally. and pace and energy yeah. that are, are very likely vastly more important in mm-hmm. understanding what's going on and what's going wrong yeah. than what, you know, the actual words that are said. And we lose that when we move, just when we strip it and make it purely digital. Life is in the nuance. Yeah. Life so is in the great. nuance. And so when someone says something, it gives you the chance to go, wait, what do you mean? X, Y, Z. 
Like, what do you, or tell me more about that. You can't do a tell me more about that online with a, you know, a survey or something like that. So. Yeah. Uh, what's funny though, is that that's, that's sort of the move in the online space these days is to try and automate and systematize that, you yeah. know, sort of branched conversations and things like that. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole because this is, it's not a show about online business, but I, just, I think it's fascinating. And, and the bigger concept is really just spend time with people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't strip the humanity out of no matter what you're trying to create in the world. There is this tendency these days, I think, because it's easier and less personal and probably it saves you from potential exposure mm -hmm. or having to deal with judgment or hearing things you don't want if it just, you know, if there's a screen between you. I actually don't think it is easier. I think it's actually a lot harder. I think it takes you, I think what people do when they do that is they extend the time that it's going to take for them to get their messaging right. Because you can go and implement any sort of hackney or like cool widgety thing that can happen on the internet with systemization. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the person who can say it the best. So it's words or it's the words that you say on your video. The person who can say that you don't need some exotic launch to make that happen. But the way to get there is you got to have human contact. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And when easier, what I meant was emotionally. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. You have like this sort of buffer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Let's get back to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Before we go too far. Perfect. That, my favorite topic. That whole rabbit hole. <laughs> um, so you end up from these, these humble beginnings, super aggressively going out there, and literally in 90 days, launching yourself into this entire new world, validating your ideas, and then building this astonishing, what, 20-year career where yeah. you keep moving up, working with higher and higher level athletes and then executives. Yeah. Why are they coming to you? Like, what do they really want from you that you're giving them that they can't, that they, they're not finding elsewhere? Confidence and decisiveness, probably more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, tell, tell me more about that. After getting around people and having these conversations with them, one thing I think I probably did well 
in the beginning was I would sit back down and I kind of reflect on maybe the workshop or some of the questions that I was getting asking. And I would always try to say, cool, is there anything underneath that? Like what's the, what's the kind of question underneath that question that they might be asking? And you'd get to kind of some main themes and more people on the decisiveness side of things. There's a lot of people who are just sitting there at the precipice of something, but they're, they're, scared or terrified or worried about making the wrong decision. Definitely on the, on the business side of things where decisiveness comes up in sports is in the moment of action, right? Like maybe the athlete who isn't the absolute best on his team, but he really wants to make that game ending shot when he's got the ball, but he doesn't because he has this hierarchy in his head as to who should be throwing the last Mm. ball at the hoop, but really kind of instilling that, confidence to then decide in that moment to take that shot. So that's where decisiveness shows up in kind of athletics is in the moments that matter. And in business, it was those people who are just have these multitude of options sitting in front of them and they get frozen from trying to be perfect. And so working with people on, so confidence and decisiveness are like two like really big themes that show up a lot with all the people that I'm and it, and it's funny because there's someone sitting there going, that's just starting on business going, Oh man, I'd love to be more confident. I'd love to be more decisive with what I'm doing. But there's people, I'm telling you, there's people at the highest level that have that same issue. It's just that they're dealing with maybe bigger things Hmm. possibly. Um, And the stakes get higher too. So if you make the wrong decision, mm -hmm. there's further to fall. Yeah. But then it comes back to how much do you trust yourself to correct if you have an inherent distrust in your ability to correct the decision when you've made maybe a poor one, then that severely affects someone's performance or their ability to make decisions. And with athletes, I say this all the time. Like at the end of the day, if there's one word that I care about, I'm always at the, I'm always, this is always in the back of my mind. And I'm trying to get all roads pointing back to this one word. And that is when I can get an athlete to completely trust themselves, trust the preparation, trust their skills, trust their game plan, their prep, all all those things that come together, you will see a performance that is typically unlike what they would typically put out there. Mm. Same thing in in business. When you can completely trust. Yeah. I think the same thing with everything with in, in artistry in teaching in Anything that you do, it's like that. And I've seen that too. And I felt it, you know, I wish I could say I live in that place on a persistent basis, but I sure. don't, you know, I certainly aspire to, but I don't know if it's possible, but I've had those moments too, where I'm thinking even as a yoga teacher, where the first couple of years I stumbled, but what I knew my job was to just develop a really deep understanding of social dynamic in a room and mm-hmm. a deep reservoir of sequences and postures. And I got to a point where I had a level of mastery over that, where I completely trusted that people would show up in a room, you know, it would be a packed house at seven o'clock on a yeah. Thursday night and they show up because they want to start in point A and they, they want to be left in point B. They want to be left changed. They want to walk out having moved through something. Mm-hmm. It came to a point where I wouldn't show up with a game plan. There was no set sequence. There was never anything where, you know, I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to do. And I learned that I could create a good experience by doing that, Mm -hmm. but it would never be transformative experience. It would never be a really deep and powerful experience because it would always mean that I was wedded to something that I knew was formulaic and good rather than trusting that I was at a place where I could 
draw upon my skills, my competencies, yeah. and give them what they needed in the moment, at the moment, for a window of 90 minutes. And yeah. when, I, when I got to that place where I started to let go, in the beginning, it was terrifying. Yeah. But once I started to realize that I was okay... And then once I also started to create, you know, there were times where I would just go blank, you know, 50 minutes into a 90-minute session and you got, you know, 100 people or whatever it is in a room sweating and waiting for you to say something and move them. <laughs> and then I realized, okay, there are like three or four things that I can always lean on and it'll come back to me. Like, yeah. It got to a point where then you start to drop into that flow state that you were talking about earlier. But the class would, I would, and by me doing that, it's almost like I set the foundation Absolutely. for everybody else there to meet me there. Yeah. And that's when the magic started to happen. But it's interesting. I didn't really key in on the fact until you just really brought it full circle now that the unlock key was, was trust. Mm -hmm. I trusted that I was at a point where I had a deep enough reservoir and command that I could just let what happened needed to happen and that I could rely on my training, as you yeah. said, using your words, to do something extraordinary. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's, it doesn't sound like trust doesn't, it, it always, when I do talks to athletes or teams or something, trust isn't the word that typically someone would think that someone's going to come out and say is the unlock key for performance. But it truly is when you think about that athlete who's standing at the top of the mountain and they're going to point their skis down a hill on typically steep and icy slope to try and race around a bunch of uh, flags, there's a high level of trust that needs to be there because you're operating at a very high rate of speed. And, you know, if you, if there's any doubt that creeps in, I mean, now you're not as responsive and reflexive as you typically would be physically. Your mind starts skipping out of the moment and paying attention to things that it shouldn't be paying attention to right there. And then that's where, you know, catastrophe can happen whether it's a fall or something like that or yeah. you just end up toggling back because you're just not trusting so yeah. how do you develop that and that's probably a much bigger question but yeah well i mean it's it, it can be a stair-step process it can be a stair-step process you know are there any safety nets that we can put in place for someone that they can develop that trust i'll give you one good example from youth athletics um there are so many poor coaches in youth athletics, you and I would both have seen them and met them at some point in time where they're more concerned about how they look because their team won or didn't win or as opposed to just what's good for this kid. How you know if you're a good coach is how many of those kids that you coached last year showed up this year. That's, that's the number one KPI in youth athletics. If you're going to take a look at that, you know, if I had 20 kids and 18 of them showed back up to play again next year, that's a freaking amazing number. But if only 10 did, well, there's breakage somewhere. So, so many kids are terrified of making a mistake because coaches start talking about perfection and being great, you know, like way too soon. So with all the teams that I ever worked with that were, whether it's an association, we would give each, so let's use hockey as an example. We would give each kid, they looked like little pogs really more than anything else. They were like little circular discs and they were mistake coupons and they could cash them in if they made a mistake on the field. And they were not going to get into trouble or anything like that. So they, we wanted to teach them that it's okay to go out there and try really hard at doing something new and different that we've been doing uh, on the practice field. And it's okay to try it out there. And if you make a mistake, just come back in and hand it in to coach. And coach is going to – and there's any one of a number of things that we can get coaches to say, great. Like, you know, good for you. Good for trying so hard. Good for make, putting in the extra effort. Um, now get back out there and let's see what we can do next time. 
And, and so it encourages kids to push themselves. I'm trying to say, okay, well, how can we create the safety net? And that's one of the things that came out of it. So practical example of trying to create a safety net for kids so that they could learn to trust themselves more on the field of play. Yeah. I mean, it occurs to me also that what you're doing, you're, you're cultivating, you know, Carol Dweck talks about growth versus fixed mindset. What yeah. you're doing is you're creating a mechanism to train the growth mindset so Absolutely. that you, you welcome mistakes and failure as data that will yeah. help you grow. Yeah. Rather yeah. than having it just destroy you. And then, so for a practical example for us is if you don't have a feed, feedback mechanism or feedback loop mechanism in your own life or business where you're sort of tracking every, could be week or couple of weeks, you know, okay, so these are the things I've worked on the last couple of weeks. How's it going for me? If you're, if you're progressing towards a goal, taking a look at your activity. Because like activity is the is the stuff that creates the lift towards whatever goals or projects we're trying to complete. It's the stuff that we're doing in our day. Create that feedback loop. Like, okay, let's just. I'm going to step aside for a second here, and I'm going to take a look at. Okay, well, of the last two weeks, how far have I come? I know Carol. She talks about growth and fixed mindset, and in my world, we talk about ow and wow brain. So the ow mindset, which is all typically pain related and struggle and effort and focusing on things that are. Goblin's going to scare you in the night. And uh, wow mindset is all about, you know, wow, look how far I've come and, and yeah. like looking at the possibility. possibility yeah. yeah. So the great thing is, is especially most entrepreneurs, if this is who we're talking to or people who are trying to work towards bigger and better things, we're always so focused on the thing that we want to have happen that we're typically not very good at focusing on what we've been doing and reflecting back on you know, how far we've come. And the more that you can reflect back on how far you've come as a part of, you're not doing it every single day, but if you, if you have it a part of your a habit or routine in your life, you will start to develop a hell of a lot more trust in your capacity to make things happen. Mm. Yeah. So agree. That negativity bias keeps us maniacally focused on what's not right. What's still not done. Like what totally. still lies ahead. And it may, yeah, it is. It's amazing how much it pulls us from acknowledging how much we've accomplished, you know, how far we've done. Yeah. Um, so you built this powerful practice, you know, speaking around the world, consulting at the highest levels of sport and industry. And then a couple of years back, you made an interesting move into this online education space. Yeah. Um, what was going on there? It was a persistent client who has already had a fairly solid and large following online that I had been working with them behind the scenes to help them scale and grow their company. And we were 10 months in and things were going amazing for them. And uh, her and her husband were pestering me saying, she's like, why don't you get this online? Like your form of performance, we just haven't seen before, just the models and frameworks that you use. And I mean, I was very reluctant. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not really interested. I really like the my, my companies, the way they're structured right now. And so with some more cajoling on her part, and they were like, listen, like, we'll take care of all the technology and we'll take care of, and we've already got a customer list. So why don't we just launch something to our customer list? So three and a half weeks later, after I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. Three and a half weeks later, we did the entire like launch, like something that many people would be kind of familiar with, like four videos, all that kind of stuff. One way that we did it, which was really good was she was more the student in it. And I was kind of the teacher, like we was her and I on camera together and, um, we had such a good time filming that. And like, I mean, she said, this is the most fun. I mean, off camera, we were like, she's like, this is the most fun I've had in business in such a long time. Mm. And it came through, I think, because we, we, it was very successful. And, um, but when, anytime I'm getting into a, 
an industry. I'm taking a look at okay, SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, right, and threats. Because you're so metrics-based. I, I am, yeah. even though I'm very creative. Right. I learned all that in a lot of my other, like doing a lot of corporate consulting. Like when you get to those levels, those big corporations are looking for systems and processes and stuff. So I needed to develop that skill set. So just looking at the industry, I was like, you know, there's not very much in the form of third-party validation of of a educate or of a program or something like that. So in corporate space, it's very frequent where you get an uh, or an ROI uh, study done on the program. So after I did that first launch, which was the beta one, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and take this game to another level in this space. And so I did a a, a study on the program, a third-party study. They had all access to the customers and lists and you know, interviewed people on its success rate for people. And that was really, really, really successful. Um, and it was done by the biggest organization in the world that does that. And then I just want to expose the program itself to more scrutiny from third parties. So I, we put it out for awards nominations and, you know, we just got a, a great award um, a, a week ago, but probably the biggest thing we were talking about this before about the online space and one of the big sh- things that I've done that's worked out well is, is just talking to people yeah. a ton because even the program that I put out there, which was the original nine a year program, which is in corporate when I brought it into the entrepreneur space, I made some tweaks definitely for entrepreneurs, but I needed to make a lot more tweaks to it to really satisfy the kind of differences between entrepreneurs and the corporate world. And I wouldn't have made those tweaks as fast as I did if I didn't talk to people consistently one-on-one, not in group. Like it's, you, you get, good data from group discussions and support sessions, I guess, but nothing can be a one-on-one discussion with someone. Yeah, I totally agree. How are you experiencing that world versus the world that you were in literally not too long ago? (laughs) Um, Doing an online program itself, it's a great way to bring in customers and clients into a world. It's just, I've never been used to that world. I'm, I'm very face-to-face. I'm, like I said before, I'm outgoing or curious. I want to be around people. That's my jam. Uh, so it's been an adjustment for me on how to make that work from a leverage perspective, but yeah. And I mean, I would say that there's, I've never been probably ripped off more (laughs) since I put stuff online. Thankfully though, I've got an army of great customers who always reach out because they know how militant I am about IP protection and and ripped off in terms of people sort of taking your ideas, repurposing them totally. and running with them. Yeah, yeah, totally them. And I mean, they can put them behind membership sites and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when, because I talk about it so much and I, you know, I've got a lot of people who are, you know, leaders or, you know, experts, so to speak. And I talk about how, listen, like if it's your stuff, like defend it. I mean, there's not one, not one of my like really, really high level entrepreneurial or business clients that would just let it go, you know, like just, Oh, it's just the universe. Just, you know, put out good vibes. And no, they wouldn't do that. Like it's business and it's, there's an CD underbelly sometimes to it. So protect it. And I'm pretty militant about protecting our stuff. What's underneath that? Um, I think it's a really strict set of values that I got from, probably my parents around just honor and integrity more than it's not, it has nothing to do with say like lack of abundance or something like that. That's not it at all because I think I've got a very strong mindset that way, but it's that I think that we've let too much of these things slide by for a very, very long time where 
you become a part of the problem the moment you don't stay say something. Like it's like I, I'm a I do a lot of stuff in the in the bullying world, and I think you become a part of the problem when you refuse to stand up to the first moment that someone is bullying someone else. And I'll call people out. I don't know if there's anything more behind it than just. I think it's just the state that we should all be operating inside of anyway. Mm. Um, you seem to have this really fierce value of honor. Well, I just saw it with my dad yeah. and my mom. They are just so well-respected in our area. And my dad's a farmer and rancher, man of few words, but just the way that they, the way that they operated and how they treated other. I mean, I grew up in a time in the 1980s when there was, hey, there was like, drought that was happening in you know our corner of the world like farms were taking a really big hit and there were bigger operations that were coming in and buying up our neighbors for pennies on the dollar and dad wouldn't if dad wanted to buy land he would pay you not what the going rate was but what he felt was the, the fair market rate so he would pay above things because it was the right thing to do mm-hmm. just little things like that so yeah. And we have a, we have kind of a policy in our family of it's not two strikes and you're out. It's one strike. You're out like from a trust and like you, you're, you don't get a second chance to screw us over kind of thing. So that might not work for some people, but it works for, it works for me. <laughs> so along the way you got married, you have two beautiful daughters, mm-hmm. third kid on the way. Yeah. Moving into this season of your life, what's important to you? Patience. <laughs> <laughs> definitely that um learning to be a really great dad um to them as well so those are big parts of my focus and um yeah i don't know i've been rolling around with patience is a big one because even like the personality i have in my business world is very different than how i am around my kids because they don't need that they don't need someone who's confident and decisive and like hard charging or anything like that they need someone who's playful and fun and um patient and all those kind of good things so that's a big part of my focus right now is 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 that side because i can work all the time because I love my work. And so I don't really consider it work. I just love thinking about it and noodling on other people's issues and problems because I think I can come up with the solution for them. But I need to detox from that sometimes and pull myself away. So, and I think I've been doing an okay job. It's sort of probably room for improvement, but yeah. So that's sort of your practice right now. Yeah. Is, uh, is developing the other side, the softer side. Yeah. And it, yeah. I don't think I never didn't, I don't think I never had it. Um, I have a, we were talking about this before. I've got a fairly strong, hard charging personality or persona that's out there, but you get into my world. I think I'm a really good caretaker for people because ultimately I just want people to, to, to get, to reach that, that level that they were kind of shooting for, whatever that might be. So, so coming full circle here, um, name of this is good life project. Yeah. Uh, if I offer that phrase out to you to live a good life, what resonates? What comes up right now? Family, big time. Being around people and friends a lot, um, and not living in a state of should have and would have and could have, and more in a state of holy shit, oh my god, or like it's just I like messing things up because I've taken you know imperfect actions at times. So good life is, has a lot of family and friends involved in it. 
And what I like about it is the fact that when I think of project, I think of something that can, that's always being worked on myself. Like it's not a goal. It's just, and that's when I think of, you know, having a good life is it's a never ending kind of unfolding. You'll always find another way of making it a better life, a good life. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. And you can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project.